0: Welcome everyone to another Blaney's Podcast and we're here live at the beautiful Spence Thomas Audio Post. Uh, This podcast is brought to you by Blaney McMurtry LLP. We are extremely happy to bring you a podcast with a panel today on cannabis and its legalization and the various aspects of its legalization from a business point of view, from a regulatory point of view and from a legal point of view of course. But before I get into the, uh, to the hard business and law of cannabis, I thought I'd read you a quote that I just recently read in a uh, wonderful article written by Ian Brown for the Globe and Mail called A Biography of Cannabis. Cannabis makes it impossible to remember all the details that threaten to drown us and lets us concentrate on them one after the other laterally and forgetfully. It impairs us, but in doing so allows us to experience the world not as masters of the entire universe, but as liberated goofball bystanders, freed from the world and our own blinding compulsion and expectations. Physiologically, cannabis disarms the bully time, quiets its instant tattoo of tick, 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 leaving us to respond to the mere moment, possibly while laughing. And not just to respond to it, but to feel it emotionally. And with that, I wanna kick off our discussion on cannabis. So we're pleased to have a panel of experts today in various areas of cannabis, and we'll start off uh, to the uh, lovely lady to my left, Angela Smith. Angela, can you tell me something about yourself and how you got involved with the cannabis business?
1: Thanks, Lou. I am founder and principal of Catalyst Life Sciences Consulting. I have a background in regulatory and scientific affairs, specifically in strictly regulated food and natural health product categories, and I recently have uh, been consulting in the strictly regulated world of
0: cannabis. Excellent. Uh, The strictly regulated world of cannabis, we'll get back to how strict that is, and I think with that we'll we'll toss it over to my partner, Nick Wong. Uh, How did you get involved with cannabis, and tell me something about your background.
2: Thanks, Lou. Well, I specialize in intellectual property law in the healthcare space, and my background is in the pharmaceutical sciences. And so on the legal side, I've worked with a number of pharmaceutical companies over the past, say, 15, 16 years, assisting them with product development strategies, IP portfolio development, and different ways to leverage their IP assets. And so as the cannabis companies came into the market, it's been basically a natural progression into them, where they've had a lot of questions and issues uh, relating to the types of products that they can put on the market, and the IP that they can build around it. And so a lot of the work I've been doing has been very similar to what I've been doing in the pharmaceutical space.
0: Thank you, Nick. And uh, to my right, we have uh, Daryl Hodges. is uh, a, a serial entrepreneur, and what I mean by that is a businessman who successfully goes from uh, one successful business to another. And I know that Daryl is uh, successfully involved in the cannabis business. Daryl, can you tell me something about yourself and, and how you got involved in cannabis?
3: Uh, Lou, thank you very much. Um, I got involved in the cannabis business uh, through a friend of mine, and it was during a wind-up uh, period. I was, uh, had been running an investment dealer for a number of years, and he was approaching me in 2013 to help him uh, put together a business strategy for a company that was trying to apply for their license. Um, when I left the firm that I was at, I immediately called him back and we sat down and started working on this. So this was the number four applicant uh, just after the, uh, the government had legalized the ACMPR program or the MMPR program, pardon me. Uh, so I got involved back in 2013 just as things were starting out here in Canada and have been involved in it uh, since then.
0: So there are two questions I have. What is the MMPR program and what is the name of your company?
3: Uh, the company I'm with is called Ancient Strains Limited. Uh, we're still a private company, and we have uh, operations uh, down in Uruguay right now, and we're looking to expand into another, uh, another uh, group of uh, countries that are all looking to legalize uh, cannabis. And so we're trying to stay a little bit ahead of that curve on the international scene.
0: Now, you mentioned the MMPR program, and uh, maybe this is a good place to start. Uh, when did marijuana or cannabis generally become legalized in Canada?
3: It became legalized at approximately uh, the year 2000, and it was basically a court decision that uh, led to this legalization. There was a gentleman who was using it for his own epilepsy. He was arrested and charged with growing his plants back in 1996. This went to court, and in the year 2000, the Supreme Court, or I don't know if it was the Supreme Court, but the the Appeals Court of Ontario uh, cleared him, and that sort of opened up the path for legalization of uh, cannabis for uh, personal medicinal use.
0: Right. So the uh, the personal medicinal use of uh, cannabis has been around for a while, I take it. Now, it, it, does your company exclusively deal with the, the medical marijuana aspect of the business?
3: Yes, that's what we are uh, working on. Uh, the company Ancient Strains is uh, strictly, at this point, related to and developing medicinal marijuana. And that's a focus that we want to maintain throughout. We think, A, that it's a it's worthwhile and it's necessary, and B, we want to focus on that we think it's a great growth opportunity worldwide
0: medicinal marijuana do we know factually and based on any empirical evidence that marijuana or cannabis actually does anything to uh, improve our health or ameliorate any condition
3: well that's a that's the billion dollar question <laughs> uh, so we when we talk about medicinal marijuana we we acknowledge that it, it hasn't actually stood up to rigorous scientific testing, except in a recent case with GW Pharma and their epilepsy drug. But in general, we sort of refer to it as a a wellness drug or a lifestyle drug and health and wellness combined. Uh, so that's the approach that we tend to take. The uses for medical marijuana are basically, as I said earlier, anecdotal, but there are a large body of evidence that it can help uh, conditions of various types of disorders, ailments, and diseases.
0: Is there in the works um, empirical tests? You know the the random double blind test? Is that are we going to see that happen?
3: We're definitely going to see that happening, and things are just getting off the ground right now on the medical research side. Uh, as this industry is such an in, in such a state of infancy, uh, that is the next sort of big breakout, I think, among other things that we're going to see is much now that several companies are up and running, they've got their crops more or less organized. They understand the different strains that they're selling. They've got some feedback. I think we're going to now start to seeing lots of uh, collaboration between universities, hospitals and the medical community and the uh, medicinal marijuana community.
0: Uh, Daryl, you mentioned a couple of things when you told me what you did. And one of the things was, I believe you called it MMPR. What does that mean?
3: Well, MMPR is now a sort of an outdated term. So when when the process started originally, it was MMAR. Then it became MMPR in 2013. And now we're operating under ACMPR, which is the most recent version uh, of the uh, legalization and legislation.
0: So speaking of legalization and legislation, uh, that leads us to Angela, who uh, does nothing but read the law and the regulations. So Angela, w- what is it about the the, the regulation of, of cannabis, both on the medical side and the recreational side, that we have to know about?
1: Well, there's a lot going on on both sides. And I think just as um, Daryl was speaking about the sort of progression with the different regulations uh, through the last almost 20 years now, um, just... Prior to legalization, we had the ACMPR, which is Access to Cannabis for Medical Purposes Regulations, Um, and those did develop due to the court cases, constitutional rights, and freedoms that uh, many Canadians have exercised. And sort of the last five to ten years, at the same time, the uh, government and numerous stakeholders have also been tracking, in general, how Canadians are consuming cannabis for their own personal reasons outside of medical use. The Cannabis Act and regulations were developed by the government and numerous other stakeholders and it was really developed due to reducing the risks of accessing cannabis by our uh, youth and young adults in Canada. And the data really showed out over the last uh, 10 years that the government has tracked that our youth are using cannabis at significantly higher rates than the rest of the general population. And the research also suggests that there are inherent risks and harms to our youngest um, population using cannabis. So the framework was really set out to create a strict system of accessing uh, cannabis for recreational purposes and that was the, that's the main tenet of the uh, Cannabis Act, and it really was to accomplish three goals. As I said, to restrict access of cannabis to use, um, to keep profits down or out um, of the pockets of, um, of criminals and the um, illicit uh, market, and to protect public health and safety by allowing adults of a certain age access to legal cannabis
0: to keep the profits out of the pockets of criminals and put it back into the pockets of the government where it should have been all the time, right?
1: Many see it that way, yes.
0: Okay, and and, and that would be through a system of taxation?
1: Yes.
0: And and how does the CRA uh, get involved in making sure that tax is collected?
1: They certainly do. They are involved uh, with the licensed producers um, to ensure that the tax... Um, system that they have set up is paid by the producers for all of the uh, cannabis that leaves their facilities and is destined for the legal consumer market in Canada.
0: Now, if I wanted to open up a cannabis farm and grow uh, cannabis in my backyard or on my farm, would it be just as easy as getting some seeds, planting it, and selling it to the various governments?
1: Actually, that's a really good question because it... Under this strictly regulated system that the government has uh, developed and enacted this year, they've actually put strict regulatory controls over any activities involving cannabis. So including cultivation, including processing, even analytic uh, type activities and research are all under our federal Cannabis Act, and require um, submissions and approval from the government to do any large-scale, I'll say, cannabis activities. As keep in mind, people generally can grow four plants for their own personal use under the uh, legal uh, framework.
0: So then, how easy or how difficult? Can you tell me what the numbers are of licensed producers of cannabis in Canada? Is it something easy to get, or are there difficult hurdles to overcome for those people who want to apply?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great question as well. Uh, there are just over, I think, 130 licensed producers in Canada. They The numbers have grown substantially in the last few years, Keeping in mind that in order to get um, a license, it is a very substantial submission to to the government. And it outlines everything from what the planned activities are, full um, security checks of the key personnel on premises, a number of other security requirements, including ensuring a secure perimeter, controlling unauthorized access, and also controlling illicit activities within the building. So that includes video monitoring, even keeping some of these files for years and years at a time to ensure that they they are um, able to be accessed by internally both the company as well as if the uh, regulatory authorities would like to um, run any audits.
0: Now, Nick, I understand that uh, not all cannabis strains and uh, uh, ultimate end products are the same. In fact, that uh, some of the producers would like to differentiate them one from the other. So from a, just from a, a business point of view or a financial point of view, why would one cannabis producer want to make sure that his kind of cannabis that he grows is different than his competitors?
2: Okay, I think what you're really trying to look at is the quality of the end product that you want to put on the market and, and the intended use. And so I think different producers would like to basically target their product to different therapeutic areas. And so what you're really looking at doing is finding the best match to whatever indication you're looking at. And there are a number of indications that the product can be used for.
0: There are a number of different kinds of chemicals that are found in the the cannabis plant. Um, cannabinoids, terpenes, THC. Is there a different effect from each one of those chemical components? And together, do they also make a different effect?
3: Yes, there are. There are over a hundred different compounds in the in the cannabis plant, and the, the main ones are the cannabinoid CBD and the tetrahydrocannabinoid THC. Those are like end members of the spectrum. Right. If we refer to this in terms of a spectrum, there are others: CBN, CBG, CBG one, etc. These are minor components. So the two that most people are aware of and discuss are the CBD, THC, and end members. And when I say a spectrum, that means that you can basically um, grow, and there are strains that cover this, of a high THC, very low uh, CBD strain, all the way to a high CBD, low THC, almost zero uh, THC. And for example, uh, you've got uh, CBD-rich hemp, which has almost no THC in it whatsoever. So there is a full spectrum, and they do have different uses. And talking about the chemical end members themselves, the CBD... Uh, and sorry, I'll just, I'll just say that the body itself has its own endocannabinoid system, and what happens is that the CBD and the THC mimic some of the chemicals that happen that occur in the nerve synapses that help with the transmission of uh, information. The THC receptors or the THC-like receptors are more in the brain, whereas the CBD receptors are more throughout the nervous system of the body. And if you can sort of picture that, that's where you sort of have this psychotropic so-called effect of THC, whereas CBD doesn't really affect you. It's more like what people refer to as a body stone. But any combination of those two can help you with not only discomfort in in your extensive nervous system, but also pain centers in your brain, which is why THC... And CBD in various combinations can help a huge uh, wide spectrum of ailments and uh, discomforts.
0: So, uh, Nick, as in pharmaceuticals, when you combine the strains and you have the desired effect, perhaps uh, uh, just from people talking about it uh, anecdotally, um, is there a way to ensure that that combination of these chemicals uh, can be protected for the grower and somebody's not just going to mimic him and, and rip him off?
2: Yeah, the combination of these chemicals can be protected for the um, the grower and and for the producer, depending on what the end product is. Under Canada's Patent Act, there is a requirement um, that any new invention is novel, inventive, uh, useful, not previously disclosed. And so if the combination that you've come up with is something new in that sense, um, something not previously known, then there is the ability to get the protection behind it.
0: Okay, so let's, let's move into the area of uh, branding because I think that that's something uh, that most people find a little humorous. When we go to a store or when we buy online, and we'll talk about stores in a minute, but when we buy online and we want to get a particular brand of cannabis, can you protect that brand from other brands that purport to use the same name? Can you, can you protect that?
2: Yeah, you can certainly protect that brand. Um, in Canada, there's the Trademark Act, And so you can register the name of the brand, either the name or the logo, for trademark protection. In Canada, it's a little different from what is going on in the U.S. In the U.S., you cannot receive a trademark registration for any cannabis-related product. That's because there's an illicit use prohibition in the U.S., and so they will not register a trademark for any cannabis-related product because it contravenes the Controlled Drug Substances Act. In Canada, that's not the case.
0: One of the things that uh, we have to worry about in Canada, I guess, is that there are so many different regulatory bodies looking at whatever we do, we sometimes have to make sure that we please everyone at the same time. So we have marketing, which is controlled by intellectual property, the usual way, through trademark. And then we have Health Canada overlooking everything else. So if I was to uh, trademark a name like Lose Weed, and i come to you what would be what would you have to do to make sure that you protect that
2: so the first thing you'd have to do is look at the cannabis act and you look at some of the restrictions on marketing under the cannabis act and so there are a number of restrictions there one of them is that it can't appeal to children but another one is that it can't depict an animal or person or be related to a person or or related to some form of say testimonial and so by associating your name with that trademark, it would basically be rejected by Health Canada under the Cannabis Act. And so you'd be able to file a trademark application for it, and the Canadian Intellectual Property Office may issue a trademark um, for you for that name, but ultimately you're not going to be able to use it. So there's a fine line there where you have to balance out uh, what you can actually put on the market and what's something you want to invest your brand in.
0: Angela, why... What is the thinking and the purpose behind these kind of restrictive marketing regulations and and law that has been enacted by Health Canada?
1: Well, the Cannabis Act, as I mentioned, it is quite strict. It is focused on preventing access for our youngest of our population. And it really has several measures to help prevent youth from accessing cannabis. And this includes restricting promotion to cannabis. So to follow up on, uh, on Nick's point... If a trademark, for instance, of a brand name or a brand element may be interpreted by Health Canada under the Cannabis Act to appeal to young persons or depict a glamorous, recreational, exciting, risky or daring type lifestyle, I'll say. Those would be non-compliant type issues that even if the trademark went through um, Canadian Canadian intellectual property, it it might get called out by Health Canada themselves.
0: Sounds like a hell Can is trying to take all the fun from smoking cannabis. Isn't that the way, you, I, I, that's what I look at.
1: Yes, I can see your point of view there. I think it also goes back to their very clear thoughts on restricting access to youths, but also allowing adults to access legal cannabis. So if a company can find creative ways to toe that fine line between allowing their brand element to appeal to adults and not appeal to youth, that's where there is a an area of compliance.
0: So if I was running an advertising agency, I'd be tasked with finding out some kind of uh, way of advertising cannabis without infringing any of these very tight restrictions and laws. What I've heard, and tell me whether you think this would work, we understand that social media such as Instagram have people called influencers, people who... Uh, essentially have large amounts of uh, followers. Can we have one of those influencers uh, hold up a marijuana joint smoke and say, this is the best weed I've had ever, and you can only get it from Aurora?
1: That's an area of a lot of debate right now, okay. actually. Um, in general, it is prohibited to um, to use influencer-type um, type strategies under the Cannabis Act. Now, that being said, um, interpretations of things like showing that you have prevented access to use under the age of 18 to your site on the, uh, on the internet is one area that um, licensed producers and influencers are, are examining on, on social media. And so I think we're in a time where those involved in the industry are really kind of almost dipping their toe in the water and seeing how far out in the water they can get and remain in that area of compliance.
0: Daryl, you're in the business. I mean, it, it must be difficult to try to market a product that you can't really market.
3: Yeah, I think the history of uh, cannabis legalization in Canada, in Canada rather, has been a, uh, a sort of a litany of government resistance and then people pushing the laws and then the, gov- the courts actually ruling on those laws and then the laws changing. And I think that this is a good example that the government really hasn't figured that out yet. In other words, if I was to speak of recreational cannabis, basically for the last 40 or 50 years, anybody that wanted to smoke recreationally could smoke cannabis, notwithstanding that it was illegal. You could always find it anywhere in this country and it never really got in the way of whether it was legal or illegal. So the government is still kind of continuing on this program of trying to you know, put up these barriers. So I, what I think is going to happen over the next few years is that in every one of these barriers that's set up that the industry will challenge them and they will end up in court and then the fallout will be what the new rules will be tweaked uh, to make this much more accessible product.
0: Nick, there's always an issue with uh, marketing, and and the big issue has always been developing a brand, a brand that you can protect, a brand that is meaningful to the consumer. It's going to be very difficult, I presume, for uh, lawyers such as you that does intellectual property law in the cannabis business to try to live up to your client's expectations when they want a really cool brand name, and then you have to tell them you can't because it's too cool. Yeah, you have to.
2: You often have clients um, who want to run with something, and you you basically have to set out the reasons why they can't. I mean, the cannabis act is pretty clear on what you you can and you can't do. There's, there are subjects um, to interpretation, but I don't think you can go out there and get Snoop Dogg to go do an endorsement for you.
0: Snoop Dogg would be the perfect celebrity. Uh, so Angela, in Ontario, we can't go to a store and buy cannabis, now can we? No,
1: currently the. Only way to obtain legal cannabis is um, online through the Ontario Cannabis Store.
0: I will guess and assume, based upon what you've told me about uh, the licensed producers and the processors, that there are, are licenses required to run and operate a retail store in Canada and Ontario and any of the other provinces.
1: Yes, there are. Similar to the federal, um, the federal act, really what the entire... Uh, regulatory framework work is looking um, to do is to set up strict regulations and processes to be able to track cannabis from seed to sale. So at the sale end, there are very similar submission processes that really you have to show that your cannabis retail store. Um, is going to be run properly, there's no link to the illicit market, that there are least minimum, if not exceeding um, standards on security requirements similar to the um, facilities that uh, cultivate and process
0: cannabis. I was thinking, Angela, could you have a life-size poster of Snoop Dogg smoking a joint as you walk into the cannabis store? You
1: raise an interesting question. I had to think about that. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> I think that would be an area of gray where maybe one of the companies might try it if it was, um, if it could be shown that it was only being seen by individuals over the age of eighteen or nineteen, depending on the jurisdiction. Um, so that sort of leads into the general thought that there are restrictions at point of sale, in, in addition where the um, information can show availability and its price, but there really can't be a promotional type um, communication around. Um, the cannabis at the retail level.
0: Um, Where does a retailer typically get his inventory to to sell to the public?
3: Right. So, and this is a. I think we should caveat this by saying this is an ever-changing landscape and every province is a little bit different. But in general, there's about 130 uh, licensed producers in Canada. About 100 of those have licenses to also sell retail or to whatever retail distribution system there happens to be. Like in Ontario, we seem to be going with this government focus system Um, but basically the rest of them the 30 that are remaining that I didn't mention uh, they are wholesalers so they will sell to other LPs who will then white label the product and then can resell it onwards but those 30 wholesalers cannot sell directly to a retail uh, distribution so they have to go through either the government in Ontario the central store of cannabis or through the other LPs who will then resell the product
0: Let's talk about medical marijuana and the accessibility directly to the public. Is it the same regime if you want to get medical marijuana? Do you have to get it through a store or through the wholesale uh, of Ontario?
3: My understanding is that when the rules are sort of finally in place, that for medical marijuana, you will go to the LPs directly and order online, which is different from the model in the U.S. where you can walk into a dispensary and you can either turn right or left and either get medical or recreational. They're priced differently.
0: Will there be... Dispensaries, retail dispensaries for medical marijuana available in Canada?
3: I believe that that's where the uh, direction will head because we do have, we know that, for example, Shoppers Drug Mart has been very interested in talking to uh, some of the larger LPs and there has been discussion of uh, sh- shoppers putting product on their shelves. So I think eventually that's where we will get to.
0: Okay, so um, one of the things that I-, I wanted to talk about was exactly what was going on in the United States and how far. It- ahead of us they are at this moment. So, Daryl, you told us a story about your trip to Colorado. Tell us again what happened there.
3: Uh, Sure. And when I came back from that, I I sort of jokingly said this is like a tale of two countries because at the time it was completely illegal in the United States to own cannabis whatsoever in any way, shape or form. In Canada, it was already legalizing on the medical. You go down to the States at that time and there were dispensaries. There was all all the variety of whatever you wanted to buy and smoke or inhale or ingest. You could do all of that. So, basically, the U.S. has state by state opened up the legalization, but they've kind of thrown it down to the level of sort yourselves out. There's rules that you're going to have to follow. Here's the guidelines. Here's the rules. And make make your business work or fall on its face. Whereas up here, I think, step by step, the government has tried to control the process and that has led to a lot of a lot of basically, if you're in a different uh, location, your rules are completely different. And as the government tries to control distribution, they tend to get in the way a little bit. And then people will be suspicious about quality and how long it's sat in a warehouse, et cetera, et cetera. So very different uh, approaches, but it sort of underlies the different approach to business, Canada and the U.S.
0: Well, before we went on on the air, you told me an interesting story about how many dispensaries there were in Denver. Oh, sorry, yes, that was that was a good story. So, why don't you right, so again? this was
3: in uh, September of 2015, and I went on a personal guided tour of the cannabis scene in Denver, Colorado. And at the time, I was told that even at that time, there were more cannabis dispensaries in denver than there were starbucks and that goes back three years
0: that's amazing so it's probably even more now as we speak
3: there's probably been a bit of a rationalization there's a huge rush of people that went from california over to denver uh, colorado to operate and now that la is legalized it's sort of come back a little bit and these state by state they're hitting their their threshold where basically it's oversaturated we're seeing price declines and some of these places are now closing up
0: so, how does Canada sort of react or relate to what's going on in the states? Is is there any synergies going on between the the American experience, the American producers, and and the Canadian market?
3: Uh, there's huge synergy, and it's more it's almost like a one-way street right now, and that is that U.S. Uh, producers and growers are coming up to Canada to get financed, which they can do. Um, going the other direction, it's quite a bit more complicated because of the federal laws that prohibit uh, cannabis in the United States. So flow of funds is extremely difficult.
0: Nick, are there American cannabis tourists coming up trying to get brand names and trademarks um, protected under Canadian law?
2: Yeah, there are a lot of companies that have filed trademark applications. Uh, U.S.-based companies that have, tri- that have filed trademark applications in Canada. A ton of them have come through in the last few in the last years.
0: So it's almost like a, a, an industry uh, protecting American cannabis trademarks going on in Canada now.
2: Right. But one of the things they have to keep in mind is that the trademarks are geographically protected, so it only protects the rights within Canada.
0: Okay. So you can't say that I've trademarked myself in Canada, hence I have first use and I, and I have any priority in the United States.
2: You can talk about the first use, but in terms of uh, enforcing the trademark in the U.S., it, it's not going to get you anywhere.
0: Angela, are we going to see a loosening up of any of these rules and regulations as time goes on?
1: I suspect with time, and I don't have a crystal ball to know how long that time is, but I suspect that as the industry develops, as the medical, of course, the medical side develops, as the recreational side develops, there will probably be changes to uh, the regulations. The caveat to that, I think, is that the government is going to take quite a cautionary approach uh, as they were developing the Cannabis Act and the associated regulations. They were looking to a number of the jurisdictions in the U.S. and, you know, outcomes of, you know, they looked at business numbers, they really looked at public health type numbers, who was accessing, and what did even a retail store look like? What did the packaging look like? And that's all of that information came together, and the uh, task force on, uh, on legalization gave a set of recommendations to the government that included restricting the look of packaging, restricting the brand elements so that they're not glamorous or risky or exciting and such. And I think that that will take some time, similar to when we think of um, alcohol, after prohibition of alcohol, there were, you know, they definitely weren't the labels back then that they are now. That you walk into, uh, to the liquor store and see um, at your, you know, in your wine section.
0: Well, the upcoming uh, days, months, and years will uh, will prove where this market is heading. What's going to happen with cannabis uh, in the future? We haven't even touched on the uh, the new novel topic of what edibles are. When how are edibles going to be controlled? And what is that going to do to the landscape? All we do know is that uh, according to the Deloitte study that was released immediately prior to the legalization of marijuana, that they suspect that the total market for this first year of legalization will be over $7 billion. Now the interesting part of it is only $4 billion of that $7 billion is from legal marijuana. $3 billion of it will still be the illegal or I guess unsanctioned uh, part of it. We have a a lot of change to see, and we all look forward to it. I want to thank my panel. Thank you all for this very interesting and enlightening discussion. And I'm sure we'll see you back for another one. Thank you all.
3: Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks,